Was it good? Was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater, too. Feel your love of Broadway anew on Backstage Babble. Hi, this is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today I'm thrilled to announce my interview with three-time Tony-nominated actress Carolee Carmelo. She has starred on Broadway in Parade, Falsettos, Kiss Me Kate, Scandalous, Talk Everlasting, Mamma Mia, Sister Act, Town, The Scarlet Pimpernel, and this last season alone in Bad Cinderella and 1776. She's also starred off-Broadway in Sweeney Todd, A Class Act, John and Jen, Hello Again, and I Can Get It For You Wholesale, and on screen in Remember When. And now, without further ado, here's Carolee Carmelo. Well, so I'd love to start us out by asking, how did you first become interested in theater? Because I know you went to college for business. and I did, yeah. Um... Well, I'd say I first became interested probably as a kid going to see some local shows. I grew up in Albany, New York, and I think my mom and dad took me to a couple of, you know, touring shows. I don't remember too much about them, but I I always thought they were fun and never really imagined that was a real job that you could have as a grown-up, but... um, uh, and also I loved the the movie musicals that were on TV once a year, like Sound of Music or 1776 or West Side Story. I love those movies. Um, but yeah, I never really, never really uh knew anyone who was in theater or had any kind of role models that would have shown me that that was a you know a viable way to make a living. <laughs> Uh, so during college, I did a few sort of, um, shows locally and, uh, in my dorm, which was really (laughs) the lowest of low budgets, um, we put on shows in the cafeteria and that was kind of my first exposure to actually performing in musical theater. And I thought it was fun, but it still never, uh, occurred to me to, to make it a career. Um, I guess the real kind of fork in the road was when I was about to graduate from college and I was offered a summer job at this theater up in the Adirondacks uh, in Lake George, New York. And I remember standing in my mother's um, hallway on the phone, which at that time, I'm sure you don't remember, but landlines had really long extension cords. So I was, the the phone was in the kitchen, but I had pulled the phone cord all the way like into the hallway. Um, And I was speaking with the producer of this theater company up in Lake George. And he was explaining to me um, about joining Actors' Equity because part of the job that he was offering me was entrance into the union 
And I had no idea about any of that. And he was explaining to me that if you ever want to pursue this as a career, you really need to join this union because that's what people, uh, you know, in professional theater have to be members of this. And if you don't, if you just want to do community theater or, you know, local stuff, then you shouldn't join this union because that will prevent you from being part of that. So it was a real kind of, you know, moment of decision. And I thought, I never knew that. And it never occurred to me to pursue this as a career. But I took the job and just decided it was sort of a fun way to spend the summer. And then I met all these actors from New York. Um, it was a production of their playing our song. And uh, they were fun and smart and encouraging to me and and I ended up moving to New York after that show was over in the fall of 1983. So I've been doing this professionally ever since then. So that's a long time. <laughs> and you 40 years. And you do have this amazing voice. And was there kind of a recognition of that talent by parents or peers or um, you know, I sang in choirs when I was in grade school. I think I, I probably had a couple of solos, but I don't think anybody ever pulled me out and said, hey, kid, you could be a star. You know, it wasn't, there was never, <laughs> there was never that kind of moment. I mean, my parents were supportive of whatever I wanted to do. You know, if I was in sports, they would come to those games. If I was in choir, they would come to the concerts. So no, I don't think I don't think anyone like pulled me aside and said you have anything special to offer. It was just fun for me and so I think I I pursued it because it was something that I enjoyed and I didn't want to I guess when I was young and when I first moved to New York at whatever that age was 22 or something. No, it couldn't have been Let's see. Yeah, twenty-one. I uh, I think I I think I felt at that time like that was the moment to try it and get it out of my system, and fully expected that I would fall on my face and never get work, and that I would realize how really difficult it was to make a living doing theater. Um, so I think it was more it was more me trying to sort of talk myself out of it. And so I, I moved to New York on a, you know, a wish and a prayer and just started auditioning. And one of the early things you did, I believe, was Raggedy Ann and Andy before. It oh, yeah. Broadway. And what was that experience like? Of That was sort of a crazy one because I had been in New York city for only a short while. And, and then one of the first jobs I got took me back to my hometown. So I, I felt so it was a very sort of strange moment of feeling like, wait, am I, am I meant to be in New York or should I stay home? Um, but you know, I was, I was in the chorus. It wasn't, it wasn't an especially, um, fulfilling like artistic experience but it was fun to be around those people that you know 
had, you know, were creating a new show. Joe Raposo wrote the score. And, and I think later on after that production in Albany that they took it to Russia. I wasn't, I wasn't involved in it anymore, but I think that they took that production to Moscow or something. So it was, it was neat to be a part of it on the, you know, ground level, but I don't think it changed anything in my mind. Like it wasn't, it wasn't a, it wasn't a moment where I felt like, oh, I'm being discovered or something like that. You know, it was just sort of one moment. And then I went back to New York City. I just, I, I felt like if I'm going to try this, I have to be back in New York rather than stay in Albany. And given that you hadn't had the kind of college experience in musical theater, did you start to take lessons in New York around this time or was most of it kind of natural? I didn't take much in the way of lessons. The only thing I did when I started auditioning, I realized that a big part of the musical theater audition process, at least for me at the time, trying to like get a chorus job or something was um, a dance audition. And I don't think I really understood that that was going to be a big part of it. You know, when I, when I moved to New York, I thought, well, I'll figure out the acting part. And I think I know how to sing, so I'll do that. But I didn't really understand how much I would need to learn, like, the language of a dance audition. So I did find a couple of dance classes just to get the basics, you know, to learn a time step and to learn, like, what certain terms meant, you know, what is a pirouette and... um but I never really enjoyed dancing that much. So I only did it like to preserve myself. So I wouldn't be totally embarrassed at the next dance call that I had to do, <laughs> but I was definitely in the category of singers who move well. Um, that was what they, you know, sort of uh, put us into little, you know, pegged us into little categories back then. So I didn't ever feel like I had to be a great dancer. I just had to sort of survive the dance part of the audition to get into the next round. But yeah, I never took singing lessons or acting class. Wow, you, no one would be able to tell. <laughs> and what was the process like when you started auditioning of figuring out sort of what type of roles you would be going up for? And I think in the beginning, I just went uh, went out for anything that, you know, sounded remotely like me. Um, I had the advantage of being a member of Equity when I moved to New York. So that helped a lot because there was, you know, as I guess there is now too, although you can join Equity without having a job now, I believe. But at that time, there was sort of a catch-22 of, um, you know, people wanted to be in the union, but you had to get a union job in order to join the union. So there was definitely an advantage for me moving to the city, being a part of that already. And so I had, a, I had access to certain auditions that other people didn't first moving to New York. Um, I don't know that I knew where I fit in. I don't know if I still know where I fit in, but I definitely tried to just put myself out there for whatever things, you know, and 
I think it was good for me at the time. It developed a, a thick skin. You know, you you face so much rejection in this business, and ninety percent of what you do is is just going to fall flat, and you're never going to get those jobs. So, it was good experience to just go to as many auditions as I could, and you know, every once in a blue moon, it would hit. So, um. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I have a good answer to your question. I don't think I figured out where I fit. I, I it was more like I just took whatever jobs were offered to me. And a few of those early jobs I know were national tours of Big River and Les Mis. And what do you like about that kind of touring life? And mm. Yeah, I hadn't done it for a long time until I just did the Hello Dolly tour. Um, it's a lot of fun. I mean, you you get to see the country and um, meet people from all around. You know, we're so isolated when we do theater in New York and touring was a great experience. You also get much closer to the people that you're working with because you are your only support system. You know, when when you're doing a Broadway show or an off-Broadway show, everyone goes home at night to their own families and their own lives. And you don't really hang out with the people in your cast or crew very much. Uh, so on the road, it's, it's, um, it's much more of a tight-knit family. And, you know, that has pros and cons, but I, I liked it. I, I really enjoyed it. I stopped touring because I had kids and I wanted to be home with them as much as possible. So I tried not to take jobs that would have me out of town for long periods of time. You know, I still, I still would do things if it was a short-term job and I could work it out with them and, and my husband at the time, and who's also an actor um, so there was always that juggling of who was going to be home and how long you're going to be away and can you get home on your day off and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't done a tour in, you know, 20 years probably when I, when I got the Dolly tour. So that was a lot of fun to, to revisit that life again. And how did uh, City of Angels come about as your Broadway debut? I think it was just an audition that was, you know, at the time I learned about auditions from backstage, which was a, a, you know, newspaper that was printed, I think weekly that listed all the auditions that were coming up. And I just went in to the uh, EPA equity principal audition and uh, sang and, and then got called back. I remember reading the script when I was about to go to the callback, they they had a script available to read and I I couldn't kind of wrap my head around what the show was. You know, I mean, you probably know about the show now that it sort of takes place in two different worlds, the world of the film and the world of the the writer's kind of real life. But reading it on paper, I was like, wait, who are, wait, what are these characters? Who are they? And how do they connect with the, so I remember being really confused by the script, but, you know, it was a Broadway job and I wanted to get it. And I ended up um, being cast as 
this tiny, tiny little chorus part, and then also understudying a couple of the leading ladies. Um, but I really wasn't happy doing that. I didn't want to be in the chorus and be an understudy. And I realized that pretty quickly. So I left the show like weeks after it opened. Mm. I was definitely the first person to leave. I left before they even recorded the cast album. So I'm not on the cast album. Um, not that I would have been because I didn't really sing anything in the show anyway, <laughs> but my name would have been on there. Um, but I went back and played um, played a role later in the run and and closed the show and was able to sort of enjoy that experience a lot more. But it was important for me to to learn that lesson about myself that I was not happy in, you know, in that position being an understudy. And that that happened a few more times in my career in the next, I would say, after City of Angels, over the next 10 years or so, when I was offered things that were um that involved being an understudy. And I would do them and realize again that I wasn't happy. And finally I sort of made a decision that I wouldn't take those jobs anymore. And that was hard because I wanted to work, but I knew that um, that it wasn't for me, uh, that I wasn't going to be happy doing that. And one of those uh, bigger parts that you did then was Cordelia in Falsettos on Broadway. And I'd be curious to know what it was like coming into the cast and creative team that had kind of had some experience together working off Broadway. Yeah, I was definitely the outsider in that cast, but um they, yeah, they were, they embraced me. They were, you know, they were welcoming. I think they were all excited to be doing the show on Broadway because most of them had done it off Broadway, except Barb Walsh, who had done it regionally. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a little hard. I was playing catch up. I was trying to, you know, fit into a, a slot that had already been created um, by Janet Metz, who was wonderful. Um, but I, it, it was such an amazing creative experience and, and such an emotional show, you know, it was a, it was a show that really taught me about the power of storytelling and the power of theater and, and what it can do to an audience. I mean, at that time it was, it was pretty groundbreaking and, I remember distinctly like people waiting to talk to us after the show and just sobbing because they had been so moved by the show and had such personal experience with the AIDS crisis. And it was just an amazing thing to see and to feel how powerful um, a piece of theater could be. And because it was so groundbreaking too, were there any concerns about how it might be received? I mean, of course it had the off-Broadway success at that point, but. Well, I'll tell you, I don't think there was a big concern when we were on Broadway, but I went on to do several tours of the show uh, as Trina. And there were definitely concerns in other parts of the country about how it would play. Um, I remember in a few cities, 
I especially remember one time in Florida when we were like getting booed and, you know, there's a, there's a scene where Marvin and wizard, the lights come up and Marvin and wizard are in bed together. And that really upset a lot of people in the South and middle America. They just kind of weren't ready to see that on stage. Um, but it felt like it was important for us to do it. You know, it felt like despite people's, discomfort some people some people embraced it and loved it um but it did feel like we were kind of crusaders in a way that we were bringing a message to other parts of the country that they might not otherwise hear and that it was important to show that these people who were suffering through this crisis were were real human beings with families and children and you know that they they could laugh and cry and and I don't know for myself I always felt like that was an important time to bring that story around the country and what was it like to to work with William Finn who I know you've collaborated with a few times yeah he's he's such a um an amazing writer. I mean, I think that one of the things I love about him so much is that he he can write something so emotionally powerful and so funny at the same time. And I feel that in so much of his work that part of what brings people to tears is that they're actually able to laugh at the same time. And it's it's such a unique talent. I don't I don't know that there's too many other writers in the world that are that adept at that kind of, you know, combination of things and he's he's so good at it. Um you know, he he's a very quirky person and I I don't know that we we didn't really get to be like close friends or anything, but I definitely loved working with him and I love his material. And I just think he's brilliant. And any chance I have to work on his stuff, which I've been lucky enough to have a few chances over the years to, to do some of his material. Um, I jump at it because I just think he's one of the greats. And I would love to ask next about Hello Again off Broadway and working with Graciela Danielle. Yeah, Grazi is one of my very, very favorite directors that I've ever worked with. She just is so kind and so supportive and so smart. And she just knows how to talk to actors. I think because she was a performer herself and so many directors are not, or if they were, actors they they didn't perform for very long so they don't have that that vocabulary to be able to communicate with the actors what they're what they're wanting and she's so good at it um i just loved her collaboration with michael john lacusa whose work i also love um they're both so smart and and so i thought I thought the show was really well crafted and it was an amazing cast. Um, I think at the time I didn't realize how lucky we all were that, you know, it was such a, such a great group of actors. 
And when you're playing a role like the ones in that show or like even Lucille Frank or even John Dickinson, that's very set in a specific kind of time and place. Do you ever do research around that or? Yeah, I try to, I mean, if it's a fictional character like Hello Again, um, I, I just, I try to understand about the time period as much as I can. And sometimes that comes from reading or, or looking things up, but other times it comes just from talking with the director or the writer and seeing what their intentions are. Um, but yeah, I think it is important, especially Hello Again, because it jumped around to so many different decades that it, it was important to me to, to really be clear you know, when I was in the 50s and when I was in the 30s to have that kind of, um, I don't know, mindset. I, I think women had a different, a different frame for their place in society in those decades. So it was important to me to, to play that part of it. Um, and of course, I, when I was playing Lucille Frank, I did as much research as I could about her, about the you know, the situation at the time about the court case, you know, whatever was written about it, I tried to read. But at some point, you have to let all that go and just bring yourself to it and know that, you know, this, it's not, it's not a history book, it's a piece of art, and, and you have to bring your interpretation to the role and not not get bogged down in, you know, well, this, you know, she wouldn't have had this kind of moment with, I, I don't know. I think sometimes people can get really stuck in that and in, in the, you know, nitty gritty of the, the facts of a, of a true life story, like John Dickinson. I mean, certainly I am not the typical person to be playing John Dickinson, <laughs> Um, but even if I were the right age and, and male and, you know, very similar to him in, in real life, the story that's written in 1776 about John Dickinson is not exactly true to the facts. I mean, from everything that I've read about John Dickinson, he was, he was much more willing to separate from England than he is portrayed in the show. And, so you have to do research, but then sort of let go of it and know that you're actually telling the story that's in the script. You're not telling the story from the history book. Right. And you have this kind of multifaceted history with 1776, having been in two of the Broadway revivals. And did it ever cross your mind when you were playing Abigail Adams that you might want to play one of the male roles? Well... I always, you know, for the past 20 years or so, when people would say, what's your dream role? I would say John Adams in 1776. <laughs> so I always wanted to play John Adams. And I actually did get to do a one night concert of that at 54 Below, which was so fun. Uh, but I don't think I ever thought about John Dickinson. I mean, that was that wasn't in in the realm of possibility for me until this production came up that Diane Paulus was directing. And then, you know, when she asked me to do it, I thought, oh, that's interesting. And I'm not sure how to approach that. But 
it ended up being so much fun. I mean, I, I love the show so much and it's always been, like I mentioned before, it was one of those shows from my childhood that has a special place in my heart. So, um, just being on stage and saying those lines and singing those songs, um, was thrilling every night. And so whether I'm playing Abigail or John Adams or John Dickinson, I, I always thrilled to be around that show. And what do you think the new concept kind of added to the show for you? Or... I think it was just really interesting to see those kind of revolutionary ideas coming out of non-male bodies, you know? I mean, we so often think of like the founding fathers and the men who created this country, but to, to watch women and non-binary people and trans people say these same lines, it was just fascinating to me as an audience member and as someone on stage listening to other cast members that those those ideas were so resonant you know so they seemed so of the moment they seemed so relevant to what's going on in today's news when they're coming out of different bodies so i guess that was the value to me was just kind of shifting my perspective and going oh these were groundbreaking ideas and these people were really pushing the envelope and so when women do that or when trans people do that it has a very different resonance now and it feels probably as shocking as it did then hearing it out of men's bodies you know um so I, you know, I know people were a little confused by the production. Some people were, some people thought it was amazing. Um, I thought it was definitely a, a great sort of artistic experiment. And it, it felt like it had, it had worth in sort of just rethinking American history, I guess. And a very different kind of project you did, but also one that was set in a bygone era, was um, Remember When on TV. And what was it like to be kind of switching artistic expressions for that, to be doing it on a screen rather than on stage? And... Yeah, I loved working on that show. I mean, in a way, that was about as theatrical as a, a TV show ever gets. You know, I mean, it was... It was filmed single camera. So every every shot, every scene that we did was basically playing to that one camera in a way that, you know, a sitcom doesn't do, or uh, I, I guess it's it was shot more like a movie. So, and the characters were so larger than life, at least my character was, that it really, felt like theater to me. It didn't feel so different. Um, except in the, in the process of it, in the, you know, I mean, we didn't, we didn't have rehearsal for a month. We had one table read and then we would have 
you know, one rehearsal on set and then get to do the scene maybe three or four times in different angles. So that part of it was very different than rehearsing a, a theater piece for a month and then doing it the same eight times a week. Um, but I kind of loved that because it was, uh, it, it forced me to make really clean, sharp, immediate choices about comedy. And uh, again, the writing was so good that it helped me to, to be able to do that easily. And, and I think it was pretty successful in, in the, you know, in the way the show played. So I, I loved it. I wish it had gone on forever. <laughs> I had a, I had a blast doing that show. And so we talked a little bit earlier about finding the role of Lucille Frank, but how did the show first come to you? I had done John and Jen off Broadway and Jason Robert Brown was the orchestrator on that show. And he had become friends with Daisy Prince, who was Hal Prince's daughter. And so Hal Prince came to see the show. Um, and I think that's how I got the audition, either through Jason's recommendation or through Hal's having seen me do that. Uh, and I just auditioned for a reading that was happening in Philadelphia. I remember... Um, the audition was at city center and I remember, you know, going in, I don't think they had any material for me to learn. I just sang my own stuff. I don't even remember what I sang at the time and probably read some scenes. Um, and they offered me this reading that went to Philadelphia just for, I think it was only for a week or two. And it was, it was one of those experiences that, unlike most readings that I've worked on before or since of new material, I remember like sitting up and going, Oh, this is really good. Like I remember talking to Herndon Lackey, who was one of the other cast members and we were riding the train back to New York at the end of the experience. And I said, that was really good. Wasn't it? Or am I crazy? Or was it really good? Um, so I, I recognized Jason's talent right away. And I remember during that week, just being very impressed by him because I didn't know him as a composer or a lyricist. I, I only knew him peripherally from John and Jen as an orchestrator. So it was, and it was amazing to work with Hal Prince. I mean, who gets to do that? So uh, that whole week was, was pretty exciting. And I had, I had had my daughter had been born six months before that when I before I went to Philadelphia. So it was, you know, it was kind of a a really difficult time for me personally to like leave home um, and having, you know, a, a newborn that I had to leave with my husband for a week or two. Uh, that was really challenging, but it felt like important enough that 
that that material was so good that I really wanted to do it. So we worked it out as a family and, and I'm really glad that I did because it was one of the greatest experiences of my career. And what was it like to be in a room with Hal Prince? And He's just so, he was, I can't believe he's gone actually. He was so enthusiastic about the whole process. Like he just, he just had so much energy. Even as an older man, he just, he loved it so much. He loved the whole, you know, creating the scenes and, and imagining what it was going to look like and explaining to us what, you know, what the set was going to be or what the, he just was so excited about it all. He was like a kid. So it was, it was really fun to be in a room with him. And he, you know, he wasn't like a pushover. I mean, he was right. demanding and he knew what he wanted and he knew when he wasn't getting it and he would, you know, raise his voice sometimes and, and get aggravated at things. But he was just so passionate about the whole process and about the whole business. And, uh, you know, he still was until his, his last days, he just was so excited and loved, loved theater so much. So it was, it was great to be around. It was contagious. And what was it like as an actress and as a person to have to go to that such a kind of dark place every night and I don't know I've had I've had people ask me about that before like did did I take home that kind of grief or that kind of darkness and I never I never did I, I always felt like I was doing a job I was being a part of piece of art. And when that was done, I left it at the theater. I mean, I, I, um, I know it was, it was very emotional and exhausting when I was doing it during those, you know, two and a half hours of the show, but I never felt burdened by it. Like I never thought, Oh my God, now I, I have to like clear my head and watch a comedy or, you know, I don't know. It never felt, um, it never felt like something that was overwhelming. I just always felt so honored to be given that role to, to dive into and to, to give life to that story. It just felt like such a privilege. So it never, it, it never felt like work to me. And what did you think of the show's original kind of reception and then watching it maybe get more of its full due now? Yeah, it was so frustrating at the time because I think we really all believed in the show and believed that it was brilliant and and meaningful and important and that we wanted more people to see it. So it was very frustrating to get, you know, such a short run and to have not great reviews and all of that. It was so sad. Um, and in subsequent years, I remember hearing about, you know, the production that happened in London and, and other productions that were happening. And I thought, oh, good. I'm glad it has a life. 
And then when I heard about the revival, I wasn't sure how it would be received, you know? I mean, because we we didn't have the greatest reception, so I had no idea. But I think maybe the world was a little more ready for it and um, just the timing was better. I don't know. But it was a great production. I'm so glad I got to see it finally after Bad Cinderella closed. I was able to go and see it. And um, it was just as brilliant as I remembered and about it. I It was very emotional for me to go watch it. I remember when the first that first sort of drum roll happens at the very top of the show. And I just felt like someone had hit me in the chest. It was just like it was such a visceral response. I had to like hold on to the armrests of the chair because um, it was such an important part of my life. And it's such a it's such an emotional show anyway, even if I had not been a part of it, right. that I just uh, I was I was pretty overwhelmed. But I got a I got a hold of myself and was able to enjoy it. And and the performances were so great. And I was just really thrilled to be there. And speaking of a show that did go through a lot of changes, I know you did the Scarlet Pimpernel on Broadway. And mm -hmm. what was it like to be kind of stepping into that role in the second sort of version of the show? And um, it was so much fun. I had done a bunch of the readings before the Broadway production happened. And then they made me audition for the Broadway production, of course, because that's what happens. Even though you put in all that time and energy and work that you still have to audition. Um, and then I didn't get it. So I was devastated to not be in the original cast. But then when it came back around and I was um, asked to do the, which I auditioned for again, the 3.0, they called it because it was like the third iteration of the show um it was so much fun i mean it was it was just you know a romance novel on stage and i had beautiful costumes and a beautiful wig and you know these soaring ballads to sing it was it was a great experience i i loved doing that show and i wonder if there's a score that you've ever found especially kind of challenging to sing or to sustain well, Scandalous was probably the hardest score I've ever had to sing because it was nonstop, like singing at the top and the bottom of my range and the whole night long. I mean, there was during previews, there was a song that George Hearn had when he was um, in the second act, when he was playing the preacher and it was my only time to like go off stage and have a drink of water and sit down for, you know, five minutes. And then they cut that song. <laughs> and I was like, no, that's my only rest. So literally like from the opening moment of the show until the final moment, I was just singing, you know, nonstop. So that was definitely the most challenging. And I don't know what would have happened if it had run for a long time. I, uh, you know, I was, I was holding up. I missed, they had to cancel one show during previews because we had been rehearsing all day. And then I was doing the show at night during previews and I just, my voice got too tired and I couldn't do it. But um, 
I don't know if I would have been able to do it eight times a week. It was really hard, really hard. And funnily enough, the singing, as hard as the singing was, the preaching was the hardest part. Like the the sort of the yelling, for lack of a better word, you know, was actually harder than the singing. And she she was definitely a preacher, so I had to go for it. You know, I couldn't I couldn't go halfway. Um, but yeah, that's the one that stands out as the definitely the most vocally challenging. And even beyond kind of difficulty level, how long do you like to stay in a given show? If it's something with long run, like Mama Mia that you did, how do you decide kind of when to leave? Yeah, it's, it depends on the show. I mean, I feel like a year is a really good amount of time, but, you know, with Mama Mia, I was making money and raising my family. I had two little kids at the time and it felt like a job that I, even though I might've been tired of doing it, which I definitely was, I thought financially, this is a good place to be. And I want to, you know, make as much money for my family as I can. So there are other considerations besides just, am I having a good time? And am I artistically fulfilled? You know, when, when you have a life and a family and children and a house to pay for, um, there are other, other variables. So, I mean, all things being equal, if there was no money constraints or anything, I'd say about a year, but I certainly have done shows for longer than a year. Um, and I think the only show that I left really quickly was what I told you before about City of Angels when I just felt like being in that ensemble understudy kind of position was was not for me. And and I didn't leave to just be unemployed. I, in that case, I was auditioning and I ended up getting the national tour of chess, which is what I left for. So I knew that there was something that was going to make me happier. And that's why I was leaving. I wasn't just, you know, saying goodbye for no reason, but, um, yeah, it really depends on the show. And so few shows run for more than a year, you know, that you really don't often have that dilemma. I think uh I think it's it's a real gift if you get a show that runs a year. And do you like to read reviews of the shows you're in or I don't know if I like it, Charles, but <laughs> do I like it? I don't know, but I do it. Um, I have always felt like if somebody's saying something about the work I'm doing and the show I'm in, I want to know about it. I mean, to a point, I, I don't go onto chat rooms and read what, you know, everybody's saying anonymously, but if there's, if there's a major paper or a television review of something that I'm doing, I feel like it's important for me to know. And it also, you know, we were just talking about 
how long shows run, it, it also is a good indication of whether you're going to have a job or not, you know? Um, and I've been in lots of shows where I read the reviews and went, Ooh, I better start looking for another job, you know, because this doesn't seem like it's going to last very long. So it does have a practical application. Um, I don't, I don't feel like I'm a masochist in the sense that I just want to hear, you know, bad things about myself, but I do feel like I have a thick enough skin that I can handle whatever they're going to say. And I would rather know than not know. That's my philosophy. Right. And I'd be curious to ask, and no need to answer this. I can edit it out if you'd rather not, but um, I'd be curious to know about the experience of being in Bad Cinderella as it received so much kind of intense feedback yeah, it was, I mean, it was a good experience. It was the nicest group of people. That cast was so wonderful and we're still in touch and get together socially more than most casts that I've been involved in, but it was really disappointing. I mean, when you put so much work and so much heart and soul into something and then it gets destroyed like that by other people, it's, you know it's really frustrating. So it was hard to keep everybody's spirits up, but I think we just enjoyed each other so much and we enjoyed playing. I mean, it, to me, it was a show that was just fun and campy and silly. And I didn't understand why it got all the hatred that it did. I mean, was it perfect? Of course not. But did people have fun when they came to the show? Yeah. So I don't know. I think it could have had a longer life, but I don't decide these things. Unfortunately, the actors have no control. Um, but it definitely was, you know, the the energy backstage was was tough because we all knew that it meant that we weren't going to last very long. And I think we were hoping we'd get to do a cast recording, which we didn't get to do. And that was disappointing, but we, we made good friends and we had fun while it lasted. And like I said, we're, we're all still in touch with each other. It was just really, really a sweet group of people. So on the whole, I have good memories of it, <laughs> even though it was a bumpy ride. And I'd be curious to ask a similar kind of question about Lestat with um, Elton John and Hugh Panera. Yeah, very similar experience. I mean, I think we, you know, we worked really hard on it. In, in that case, we went out of town for a while with it, tried to make uh, changes on it out in San Francisco. Um, I th think there was a sense in the cast that we that we felt like it might not be working. It might not be coming together, but I was always hopeful that just the, the fact that it was Elton John's music and, and Bernie Taupin, who's a great lyricist and that it was Anne Rice stories that so many people were crazy about those books that I thought that might be enough to get us a little bit of a run, but, it didn't happen. Um, so yeah, it's, it's hard. It's hard when you're in a show that, you know, is kind of a sinking ship. It's, um, it's hard to go out and do it eight times a week and feel like it's not 
um, that it's that it's not doing what you hoped it was going to do. But you know that's part of the gig. You stay there as long as you have to, and you and you do your job, and you try to entertain the people that come because that's you know that's what we get paid for. Wonderful. And I'm sure I know you did a lot of workshops though before the Broadway production. Was Tuck Everlasting? And what was it like to see that show through? I believe it was at least five years before. I think it was seven. Um yeah, I mean that's that's part of the what I was talking about about the you know the expense of putting on a show, you know, that trying to do out of town tryouts and then another workshop and then another reading and then another out of town. And then, you know, because producers are, they want to be sure the product is ready before they put millions of dollars on the line. Um, and, you know, it was a sweet, sweet show. Um, people still talk to me about it and I know it gets done in a lot of schools and I'm happy that other people are getting to enjoy it. Um, but again, it was frustrating to not have a nice long run or at least, you know, a medium length run. <laughs> we were all very frustrated, but we did get to do the recording in that case. And that was great. Um, again, a wonderful cast. You know, you always take away something good from an experience, whether it's a, a hit or a flop. And I wonder if um, a similar question to Parade, if you could give some insight into what some of the major changes were during that process of working on that show. Oh, um, gosh, the, there were lots of changes. I'm not so good at remembering different versions of the show, I have to say. Once it was like frozen, I, I think that's the version that I remember in my head. Um, but there were different, I know they changed a lot of the relationship in the second act between my character and Michael Park's character who played my husband. They were really trying to futz with what that, what that marriage was like, because that was an important part of, it might not have been an important part of the book because the book was written for kids, but it was important to an adult audience, I think, to to watch, you know, people who have been together for 75 years or 100 years, whatever the, I forget the exact numbers of how long we had been alive and married, but what happens to a relationship, even a great relationship over that span of time. Um, so there was a lot of futzing with that. I remember different songs and, and moving things around and taking a piece of a song and doing a reprise of a song. Um, that changed a lot. Um, I remember the fight scene that I had with Terry Mann, where I ultimately ended up hitting him over the head and killing him. That scene, they kept trying to do different versions of how does he die? You know, what is the motivation? How, you know, I, I remember that scene, rehearsing that scene an awful lot in various, in, 
in the out of town productions in the New York production, it it just kept getting tweaked. I'm not sure if it ever had like the perfect answer, but we got to some version at the end. I don't even remember what it was. <laughs> I think I hit him over the head with something. I don't know. Well, so I'd love to ask, you mentioned how you like um, being an original cast of musicals and going through that kind of development process. But at the same time, what is it like stepping into a role like in Kiss Me Kate or You're in Town kind of mid-run? Yeah, in a way it's, I, I think I've done like about equal amounts of replacing and originating things. And uh, I like them both for different reasons. I like, I like the fact that when you are replacing in a show that's long running or a show that's been done before, um, everything's figured out, you know, you're not getting rewrites and you know where the laughs are and you really just have to hit your mark and know your lines and figure out what your interpretation is going to be there's there's not as much you know anxiety about whether things are going to be the same when you walk into the theater tomorrow like it's it, it is what it is and I kind of enjoy that. I like the, I know, I know some people don't like to have the, the constraints of fitting into what somebody else had decided to do if you're replacing in a Broadway show, but it, it's never bothered me that much. I, I think there's something kind of easier about it because you know exactly what's expected of you. And uh, that, that takes the pressure off a bit. So I've done it quite a bit and I, I probably will do it again. And I really don't mind. I think it's, uh, I think it's equally satisfying to, to step into a, a show that's already running. I mean, the, the rehearsal process, I'm not, I'm not an actor who loves rehearsal to begin with, but, um, the rehearsal process can be challenging when you're stepping in. If you're the only one who's, who's, joining a cast you spend weeks all by yourself in a rehearsal room with a stage manager who's carrying a script and feeding you you know your lines and that's not a lot of fun i mean you you need the repeti repetition and you need you know somebody to show you exactly what you're supposed to do but it's not it's not an especially fun process but then once you get into the show and and figure out you know, your bearings. It's, it's a lot of fun. I, I think in, in most of my experiences replacing people, the casts have been very welcoming and everybody knows that you're, uh, you know, climbing uphill when you join a, a, a running machine. Okay. <laughs> so everybody's pretty, everyone's pretty forgiving in the beginning. And then you, you know, you get your, you get your stride and, and it's, uh, it's not the same as originating, but it's, it's just as fun in different ways. And you mentioned that uh, John Adams used to be your go-to answer for what role would you want to play, but is there a new one now or one you wish you had done, but didn't get to do or. Um, I mean, I'd love to do something new that I don't know about yet, but uh, 
I also would kind of like to revisit Sweeney, I think, at some point. That was really fun. I mean, I did it for a year down in the the off-Broadway production. Um, and I'm sure there will be, you know, regional productions that I'll be able to do. Um, I don't know. There's nothing that's that exists right now that that I feel like is my dream role, but maybe there's something that hasn't been written yet. I've always been wanting to do a one woman show of some sort and I haven't found the right project yet, but that's one of my dreams before I, before I completely retire that I would like to try my hand at that. I don't know why, I don't know what exactly it's a, it's appeal is to me, but there's something I feel like I'm not going to be finished until I do a one woman show. <laughs> so we'll see if that happens or not. I'll keep you posted. Yes. And then the final question I'd love to ask is with such a great career, what advice would you give to someone just starting out? Oh gosh. Um, just to know, I guess, I guess my advice would be don't be, afraid of rejection because it's it's a part of every artist's life and it's it's such a hard thing to sort of recover from but if you can find a way to just put yourself out there day after day you will you know you will find auditioning gets easier and being vulnerable gets easier. Uh, it's never completely goes away. I mean, when I audition now, I still get nervous and there's nothing wrong with that. I think that people shouldn't be afraid of, of nerves because sometimes that can help spark some of your performance audition for everything and anything and, and just see what sticks. It's um, somebody once said that it's, that you have to have two of these three qualities to succeed in this business, talent, perseverance, and luck. And you have to have two of the three at all times. And I think that's really true because there is a lot of luck involved. But even if you don't get the luck, if you persevere, sometimes just the time that it takes to get you to the next level will will naturally happen. I wish everybody luck who's going to give it a try. Yes. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been such a pleasure to meet you and talk to you. Thanks, Charles. You too. Nice Listeners, you. thank you for tuning in. And remember to come back next time when I will be joined by veteran actor Dylan Baker, whose myriad credits include the Broadway productions of Eastern Standard, November, Mauritius, The Audience, The Front Page, and Bernhardt Hamlet, and off-Broadway appearances in Two Gentlemen of Verona, Pierre Gint, Homebody Kabul, Pride's Crossing, That Championship Season, and more. He's also starred on TV in Happiness, Selma, The Good Wife, and Law and & Order. You won't want to miss that episode, so make sure to tune back in for that, and thanks for listening.